the witch, may we burn her? Burn her! Who do you know she is a witch? She looks like one! Bring her forward. I'm not a witch, I'm not a witch. But you are dressed as one. They dressed me up like this. And this isn't my nose, it's a false one. Will? Well, we did do the nose. The nose? And the hat. But she's a witch! The really exciting and frustrating thing about the word witch is that it has four different meanings at the present day, two of which are very old and two of which are relatively modern. The really old meanings are that a witch is somebody who uses magic to hurt other people, to kill them or distress them. And that a witch is somebody who uses magic for any purpose, good or bad. People who use it in that way often distinguish by saying that people who use it for bad purposes are bad or black witches, and those who use it for good purposes are good or white witches. And the two modern definitions are that a witch is uh, basically a feminist, uh, a feisty, independent woman with skills and uh, abilities which make men jealous and so she's persecuted. And that has the truth that the witch is one of the very few images of independent female power that traditional society gives us. And the last definition is that a witch is a practitioner of a nature-based pagan religion, of a goddess and a horned god of uh, the wild. Those last two have been around for a couple of hundred years. They're only relatively new. public interest in witchcraft is one of the most curious features of life today. But it's very difficult to get at the truth of what it's all about. On one estimate, there are 30,000 people practicing in witchcraft in this country alone. A more conservative figure would be 8,000. But even so, it's enough to make you think. Are there really dangers involved, or is it all just a delusion? And if it is just a delusion, why do so many really quite intelligent people half believe in it? Just what has been going on in this country since the last of the witchcraft laws was repealed in 
I'm thinking back on all the times I've affectionately been called a witch and as yet I've not openly identified as one. I don't have a coven but I do have a cat, I have an altar, I read the tarot and follow the moon cycles and I deeply believe in the magical act of having a bath with herbs and salts allowing all my anxieties to drain down the plug hole with the bath water. So what can the figure of the witch present to us today? As a historical image, she carries pain, persecution, darkness, fear, mystery and struggle, and yet now she can represent freedom, hope, positive feminine power and positive power for all genders. As a magical figure, she calls an agency for transformation and change. And as a creative figure, she is an inspiration and an image of enigmatic beauty. This first episode of A Common Craft is based around healing and healers and ideas around reconnection. How can the witch help us to heal ourselves, our land and our communities and show us the magic in the everyday? definitions of a witch until the 19th century, when really after the French Revolution, all the traditional European ways of thinking come up for review, and especially among the radicals of the 19th century, the witch became reinterpreted as uh, a freedom fighter, a feminist, a nature lover. So really a lot of the views of the witch since about 1800 have been positive. Melisi. Caridwen. Mother. Bride. Dana. Behold. Behold. Daughter. Ariamrod. Dana. Virgin. Isis. Diana. Crone. Artemis. Astati. Wisdom. Artemis. Daughter. Ariamrod. Caridwen. Virgin. The Mizphi legend. A widow who had an only son was obliged, in consequence of the large flocks she possessed, to send, under the care of her son, a portion of her cattle to graze on the black mountain near a small lake called Hrini van Bach. One day the son perceived to his great astonishment a most beautiful creature with flowing hair sitting on the unruffled surface of the lake, combing her tresses, the water serving as a mirror. Suddenly, she beheld the young man standing on the brink of the lake with his eyes riveted on her and unconsciously offering to herself the provision of barley bread and cheese with which he had been provided when he left his home. Bewildered by a feeling of love and admiration for the object before him, he continued to hold out his hand towards the lady, who imperceptibly glided near to him but gently refused the offer of his provisions. He attempted to touch her, but she eluded his grasp, saying, Hard-baked is thy bread, it is not easy to catch me. 
She immediately dived under the water and disappeared, leaving the love-stricken youth to return home, a prey to disappointment and regret, that he had been unable to make further acquaintance with the lovely maiden with whom he had desperately fallen in love. On his return home, he communicated to his mother the extraordinary vision. She advised him to take some unbaked dough the next time in his pocket, as there must have been some spell connected with the hard-baked bread which prevented his catching the lady. Next morning, before the sun was up, the young man was at the lake, not for the purpose of looking after cattle, but that he might again witness the enchanting vision of the previous day. In vain did he glance over the surface of the lake. Nothing met his view save the ripples occasioned by a stiff breeze and a dark cloud hung heavily on the summit of the van. Hours passed on, the wind was hushed, the overhanging clouds had vanished, when the youth was startled by seeing some of his mother's cattle on the precipitous side of the acclivity, nearly on the opposite side of the lake. As he was hastening away to rescue them from their perilous position, the object of his search again appeared to him and seemed much more beautiful than when he first beheld her. His hand was again held out to her, full of unbaked bread, which he offered to her with an urgent proffer of his heart also, and vows of eternal attachment, all of which were refused by her, saying, Unbaked is thy bread, I will not have thee. But the smiles that played upon her features as the lady vanished beneath the waters forbade him to despair and cheered him on his way home. His aged parent was acquainted with his ill success and she suggested that his bread should the next time be but slightly baked as most likely to please the mysterious being. Impelled by love, the youth left his mother's home early next morning. He was soon near the margin of the lake, impatiently awaiting the reappearance of the lady. The sheep and goats browsed on the precipitous sides of the van, the cattle strayed amongst the rocks, rain and sunshine came and passed away, unheeded by the youth, who was wrapped up in looking for the appearance of her who had stolen his heart. The sun was verging towards the west, and the young man, casting a sad look over the waters ere departing homewards, was astonished to see several cows walking along its surface, and what was more pleasing to his sight, the maiden reappeared even lovelier than ever. She approached the land and he rushed to meet her in the water. A smile encouraged him to seize her hand, and she accepted the moderately baked bread he offered her, and after some persuasion she consented to become his wife, on condition that they should live together until she received from him three blows without a cause. When, should he ever happen to strike her three such blows, she would leave him forever. These conditions were readily and joyfully accepted. We are whirling 
through space, drifting toward eternity. Mystical sparks encircled by loneliness and cold darkness. Are you afraid? So are a lot of other people. One of the reasons witchcraft has survived through the ages is because man's need to coerce destiny and subdue the fear within has never subsided. Witchcraft. Paganism and witchcraft overlap at the present day, but they're not the same. Paganism is uh, a complex of religions, old and new, that centre on the deities of pre-Christian Europe and the Near East. And uh, a witch today is somebody who practises magic. A pagan who practises magic can call herself or himself a witch. Across the world, different groups of human beings have had different views of magic. So within uh, the same small group of Pacific Islands, you can find peoples who really fear magic and believe that women are especially likely to be bad witches. Those who really fear magic can think that men are most likely to be bad witches and those who don't fear it at all. And they're kind of, they kind of make a patchwork quilt with each other across the surface of the planet. Not so much a matter of witches being accepted yeah. as uh, people not fearing witches. Right. Uh, and that's what you might call the Celtic-speaking parts, the British Isles, Ireland, Wales, Gaelic Scotland, the Isle of Man, where uh, fairies, land spirits, have been feared for the kinds of things blamed on human beings elsewhere, like blighting people and giving them diseases and uh, getting rid of their children and things like that. The problem of semantics is that people who have either disliked magic or haven't believed in it before 1800 tend to cause anybody who practice, tended to call anybody who practiced magic a witch. Uh, whereas people who believed in magic called good magicians, wise folk, cunning folk, uh, pellers, dunhusbadai, a range of local terms, but not witches. You don't believe in witchcraft, do you? Do I believe in witchcraft? What kind of witchcraft? The legendary witch that rides on the imaginary broom, the hex that tortures the thoughts of the victim, the pin stuck in the image that wastes away the mind and the body. Also imaginary. But where does imagination end and reality begin? What is this twilight, this half-world of the mind that you profess to know so much about? How can we differentiate between the powers of darkness and the powers of the mind? First, I'm an Italian woman and uh, Sicilian because we we have like Vulcano in the blood because we live close to Etna. So that is important for me. 
And uh, I am a Dayani priestess. I've been ordained into the Dayani tradition in, I think it was 2014. And the Dayani tradition is like a spiritual path that is uh, female-centered and the work with female witchcraft and female empowerment and is also a healing path from the influence of patriarchy on women. So ritual has been created from women for other women. And uh, so that is what is like my spiritual path in the raft. But with that comes also the green witchcraft. So I'm an esoteric herbalist. So esoteric herbalist, plant alchemy, working with plants. That is like the theme of my life because like I'm a garden designer. And uh, so I study plants from a university point of view. And uh, so I started to study plants from like a um, vibrational and magical point of view since then. It's a kind of shamanic, like use shamanic techniques to enter in contact with the spirit of plants, with, with plant consciousness, and after use this mainly for healing people and you can use for the land as well. It's very radical yes. and it's very threatening to the way we live our lives because what the goddess really is, is a, you could say, a metaphoric shorthand for saying, hey, this earth that we live on is alive mm -hmm. and all of us are part of it. Mm -hmm. All of it is interconnected. Um, when we talk about the four elements being sacred, as we do a lot in the goddess traditions, you know, we're saying air, fire, water, and earth are sacred. What that really means is that these are the things that should determine our values, that should determine the value of everything else. And if we took that seriously, you know, if we took seriously that the air was sacred, it would mean anything that destroys the air cannot be done, you know. to communicate with plants from a consciousness point of view for like a being sentient being with his own characteristic and uh, through this connection which mainly is created through breath work and uh, heart connection or sound resonance and senses so we use all the senses and uh, you get information from the plant or what she want to share with you how she want to work with you and after you can use to like share this medicine with other people through treatment, through like uh, creating like medicine, vibrational medicine, like for example, I make flower essence. And basically in some principles are, for example, of the practice that are used into the plant spirit healing system, let's call this, because of course it's not like a spirituality, it's a practice, it's a system. And there are, for example, like you can do soul retrieval, 
to recover pieces of the soul that have been lost through plant allies. There are plants that are specific of some kind of specific or other works. Or you can work on um, cleansing, clearing, so chakra work and alignment and uh, extraction of like intrusive energy. You can also work on the possession using plant spirit. So as a lot of like practice that you can find on traditional shamanism. So let's say that that is a sort of shamanic path which work with plants, consciousness and plant spirit. Working with plants from another point of view, where also I deepening my knowledge to work with healing gardens. So there is also there an healing like uh, element because like uh, therapeutic garden, therapeutic landscape, which works specifically with shapes, colors, so chromotherapy, aromatherapy, they can be simple like a place where you can go and heal from stress and anxiety through the contact with nature to places that has been created to be like of support of traditional medicine and recovery. Indeed, you often find healing garden or therapeutic landscapes uh, in um, care center, hospitals. There are in USA, you can find a lot of, of these places. Natural therapies, natural healing, spiritual healing, uh, the use of natural substances like herbs in therapies. These are all skills which were practiced by folk magicians in the old days. Uh, and these are people whom those who didn't actually resort to them often called witches. So in that sense, there's a direct link between witchcraft and alternative therapies. someone you can perform a spell on the person or concerning the person and if we have knowledge for example of quantum physics is basically magic so two particles that enter in contact after if you place them far 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 away they acting in one you can see the consequences in the other particle that is far between like space and time i think that witchcraft use science so for me they are they are the same thing and let's say that science is a way to explain energy phenomena in a way that can be understood and maybe even accept. Magic is just an intuitive way to work with the energy, but we do the same things, basically.
conditions were readily and joyfully accepted. Thus the Lady of the Lake became engaged to the young man, and having loosed her hand for a moment, she darted away and dived into the lake. The grief of the lover at this disappearance of his affianced was such that he determined to cast himself headlong into its unfathomed depths and thus end his life. As he was on the point of committing this rash act, there emerged out of the lake two most beautiful ladies, accompanied by a hoary-headed man of noble mien and extraordinary stature, but having otherwise all the force and strength of youth. This man addressed the youth, saying that, as he proposed to marry one of his daughters, he consented to the union, provided the young man could distinguish which of the two ladies before him was the object of his affections. This was no easy task, as the maidens were perfect counterparts of each other. Whilst the young man narrowly scanned the two ladies and failed to perceive the least difference betwixt the two, one of them thrust her foot a slight degree forward. The motion, simple as it was, did not escape the observation of the youth, and he discovered a trifling variation in the mode in which their sandals were tied. This at once put an end to the dilemma, for he had on previous occasions noticed the peculiarity of her shoe tie, and he boldly took hold of her hand. "'Thou hast chosen rightly,' said the father. "'Be to her a kind and faithful husband, and I will give her as a dowry as many sheep, cattle, goats and horses as she can count of each, without heaving or drawing in her breath. But remember that if you prove unkind to her at any time, and strike her three times without a cause, she shall return to me and shall bring all stock with her.' Such was the marriage settlement, to which the young man gladly assented, and the bride was desired to count the number of sheep she was to have. She immediately adopted the mode of counting by fives, thus, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, as many times as possible in rapid succession until her breath was exhausted. The same process of reckoning had to determine the number of goats, cattle and horses respectively, and in an instant the full number of each came out of the lake when called upon by the father. The young couple were then married and went to reside at a farm called Eskaya Leichtin in Mithwai, where they lived in prosperity and happiness for several years and became the parents of three beautiful sons.
I am your gut. A facsimile, in truth, but a sacred stand-in for seven meters of ancient hardware. I am your most magical organ, and know what you're thinking even before you do. Primitive intuition, all that is bodily automatic. I am constantly ticking away under the bonnet of your consciousness. I am the magician, transmuting and transforming a flow of energy as above, so below. The house of unseen microbiomes harboring the elements for vitality, creativity and awareness. As a sacrificial conduit, I am offered to the divine to bring about healing. An example of imitative magic, of sympathetic magic at work. So in the exhibition I've got, um, a, I borrowed a votive from the Museum of Witchcraft and it's a wax gut and it's um, in a plinth and it has a soundtrack and okay. I've written a, a statement as if the gut is talking okay. and I'm really interested in or I, I feel that there's a huge parallel obviously in the sayings of gut instinct but also that the gut is your kind of second brain or more primitive brain yeah. um, and um, often mental health and the gut are very closely linked and now there's all this amazing science about the microbiomes and the organisms that can live inside your gut that can mm -hmm. help with mental health or degenerative disease and it's just so exciting mm -hmm. um, and the this idea in magic and um, the practicing um, practitioners of magic that I know talk about intuition yeah. And there's this talk about intuition all the time and people don't know how to be intuitive. And I get asked all the time, what does that mean? How do you become intuitive? What do you do? And I often sort of think, well, that's um, being present. And like you were just explaining this idea of being able to think about what it is that you want to attract or what it is that you are trying to change about yourself. Um, is there anything, what would be a good way to begin becoming intuitive for someone who maybe has come to the subject of witchcraft and is intrigued and doesn't know what it means or the idea of working with magic, would intuition be the first step? And if it was, what could you do to promote that? I think that we all have intuition. Sometimes we just like have a voice to listen ourselves for so long that, of course, ourselves doesn't talk with us anymore <laughs> because is how we work. And uh, I would say that the first thing is letting all the knowledge you have or that has been imposed. Because intuition comes from a, a sense experience because it's connected with feelings. So you feel. And you are full of receptor, receptor. Even our skin is full of receptor. So we can feel. And sometimes we use the, the word I feel like in... Is I feel so I know. There is a plan that works like very well with this. That is the from like of course um, plant spirit point of view for the experience I had, which is by Nigella Damascena, which you hear you call love in the mist. Love in the mist. Yes, is out to re yeah. So blue. It can be white, can be blue. Is like and it's full of these leaves that looks like antennas and they has these as my favorite flower. But anyway, talking, having a chat with, with Nigella, I discovered that she's really helped you to just reconnect with your body, 
in order to know because you feel. So not through feeling and not through mind. Because intuition is just feel. And after, no knowledge, knowing comes from the feeling. And in order to do that, you need to shut down the mind, that's for sure. And start to just do experience of your senses. So I will like pass through each senses, okay? And each sense and just touch things, smell things. And what happened within yourself when you do that? Because the first thing is reconnect with the body. After, maybe, if someone is more septic, I would say just write down everything comes in your mind about some. Sometimes it's a little voice. <laughs> to me, happen is a little voice. And uh, sometimes it can be louder. Sometimes it's just like, oh, I knew it. <laughs> it just, I knew, I talk to myself and these things happen. Sometimes they're really creepy. But like, and, uh, and, but if intuition is feeling, okay? So the first thing is reconnect with your body, which is an, in part is a sort of rewilding yourself. So the contact with nature and like uh, touch the hurt, work their food, uh, like is, is rewilding yourself is a, a way to recon, re enhance the intuition ability, in my opinion. People stay close to their folklore on the land if they have to work the land hard. Mm. In other words, the more commercialised farming is, the weaker the link. The more you have to labour on your land daily for your family croft or your valley farmhouse, the more you're inclined to believe that it's teeming with spirits and it has moods and you've got to keep on the right side of it. I think um, not directly in terms of, I never think about it in terms of witchcraft or having any, I suppose, like a genre connection, but mm. I do think that, the, I think that food is, um, is kind of the starting point for me for all culture and I think you can really put most human behaviour comes back to some kind of need to eat um, or need for shelter. Um, and I can easily see how the maybe the objectives of um, kind of mystical ritual and things like that have the same objective. You know, maybe they're just trying to achieve the same things, but taking care of different element of it. Mm. But food, like cooking's transformative. I, it was only when I read, I, these things have taken me a long time to be able to articulate, and I still can't articulate them properly, but the, you know, reading... Um, Michael Pollan's cookbook called Cooked it was the first time I ever real, like, realised linguistically that cooking is an act of transformation. Um, and then when you just boil it down to something that simple, mm. um, it does widen the scope of what cooking is and into fermentation or just kind of um, making any kind of change. And I suppose for me that was the beginning of my journey with small food and thinking about it much more holistically in terms of maybe the beginning of the cooking or the transformation being connected to the earth and to the soil um, instead of thinking about it from the point of view of when the ingredients arrive in the kitchen that's when you start cooking I don't think about it like that I think of it as a complete ecosystem and I imagine the end result that I want which is to do with flavour and mouthfeel and pleasure and maybe a social situation or a cultural situation that can be evoked by those things or, or those things could support 
um, and then I'll work back in my mind right back to how something's grown or how something is obtained um, or processed before it comes to me and I think there's a bit of something mystical about some of those processes because I don't fully understand them and that's where I see the connection it's like mm. things I don't fully understand there's a lot happening on microbial level in cooking that we can have intuitions about and I'm fully prepared to accept now after four years of being a baker I'm working with very very natural ingredients that there's so much about our own body's intelligence that we don't know that's made up of microbes that responds to what we eat and what we feed it and I don't think I just don't think the connection's simple. That's a bit of a waffly answer, but um, maybe the connection is that the acceptance of kind of trying to do your best to steer a situation with respect to all of the elements that you don't know, mm. um, but still trying to achieve some kind of truth in what you're doing or to some kind of purity in what you're doing and trying not to upset those things that you don't know. And we do better, we're more rational when we acknowledge what we really can't control, when we acknowledge that the earth is bigger than we are, mm -hmm. um, that we can live in balance, we can live in harmony with it, we can learn to do that, but we can't impose a kind of numerical order on something that has factors that go far beyond that. So I think mis mystery is a, a necessary corrective, you know, to our scientists, to um, our politicians and our political movements. Because one of the things that always hampers political movements is people get stuck again saying, this is the answer, you know. And if you don't agree with my particular version of the answer and exactly the way I phrase it, you are bad and wrong and, you know, out of... Really, to me, politics, um, there's a definition of magic that a woman named Dion Fortune coined, I think, back mm -hmm. in the 20s. It says, magic is the art of changing consciousness at will. And I think that holds up very well also for political change, that when we're talking about the kinds of changes we need in our culture, we need vast changes in consciousness. And that can't be done by imposing it on people. The kind of national, I don't know, group of foragers, I can't remember, or association of foragers had spent a long time thinking about what it was that they were trying to achieve by promoting foraging and by trying to teach people about foraging. Um, and, and they were saying that they finally came up with the, the kind of slogan of restoring vital connections. And to me that's so, that was so 
profoundly succinct in terms of everything that we try to do in the kitchen. Um, and I think can be applied in every aspect of our culture, whether it stems from food or the need for medicine or the need for um, shelter. I feel like this kind of uh, political um, era that we're living in, this kind of neoliberal sort of individualist kind of era has broken lots of vital connections and um, there is there is seemingly a bit of a resurgence in in our culture of people who are trying to restore those vital connections so it's like simple things like having trust in your palate is something that I identified early on when I decided to have a very public kitchen and kind of food um, enterprise Although, and we've done all these kind of events where we've invited people in and we've been teaching people to cook and just simple acts like giving people food over the counter just to try if we've got a new ingredient that's just been brought in and giving it to children and just saying taste it it's not it's not a buying and selling transaction this is just just try it and this idea that you know just re-empowering people to trust their taste buds or just to learn to to think of their taste buds as a as something that needs to be developed because it's a survival mechanism um, instead of outsourcing all of that trust to big corporations on the basis that that's somehow more time efficient for us not to worry our little heads about it. You know, it's just, um, yeah, that's such a kind of important point for me, I think. Witchcraft is two different things, really. It's uh, a bundle of images and associations, and it's uh, a craft, a technique, a set of practices. And so it's infinitely malleable. It can be made into a religion, it can be made into art, it can be made into therapy, it can be made into all sorts of things. And whereas a lot of traditional religions are rather uneasy with the idea of picking and mixing in personal belief, uh, modern paganism and the occult are virtually designed for that.
which we said. Now, the most important thing you should know about real witches is this. Now listen very carefully. Real witches dress in ordinary clothes and look very much like ordinary women. They live in ordinary houses and they work in ordinary jobs. I think one of the reasons why people fear the word witch so much is that it brings up ideas about women's power. And for 5,000 years or longer, we have been propagandized, really, to fear women's power, to fear female power, to see it as something negative, something to be afraid of, something destructive, something evil. And naturally, we have all those associations that come up with the word witch. That's why, for me, it's important to use that word, to bring it up, to say, look, let's bring out into the light all of this stuff. Let's look at it clearly and realize we don't have to fear it. Modern Druidry is a nature-based spirituality or religion which looks for its models to the more positive images of the ancient uh, priesthood or priestesshood of northwestern Europe, including Britain, known to the Romans and the Greeks as Druids. One that I would say is that it's very simple but is maybe the most important ritual is what we call self-blessing, which is basically like bless yourself, your body, your and uh, have, you can do every day, you can do one time a week, you can do when you need. But is this acknowledge of the, that you are a reflection of the divine, that you are divine, that, and so that also for some people that you worth love without, because you already are love, no? So, uh, so that I would say is the most important, recognize the, that you are sacred, because when you can do with yourself and you know that another person is like you, is a reflection. So if I'm sacred, you are sacred. So this opened the door to respect as well for everyone and everything. So that I would say that is a simple ritual with like blessing line for each part of your body and you can do with candles and a mirror and uh, some oil anointing hall where you touch part of the body and you bless and you recognize this 
the, the divine is within yourself, that you are part of the divine, that you are divine. And that is what I believe to be one, not the most, if not the most important ritual in my tradition. Wicca emerges in the 1950s, it's certainly there at least 10 years before. The leading personality is a retired civil servant who'd lived most of his life in the Far East, called Gerald Gardner, who claimed to have encountered a surviving ancient coven of pagan witches and been accepted into it, and given himself the task of telling the world about this religion before it died out, and in doing so, rekindling it. How true any of this is, is unknown. He and his friends may have created the religion together, though from ancient materials, or he might well have met a bunch of people who were already practising it. Wicca is really an extreme distillation of various cultural trends that have been developing in Britain ever since about 1800. Uh, a desire to get closer to nature, which was vanishing. A desire to revive the nicer aspects of the old religions of Europe as a way of affirming life and getting closer to the natural world and having more choice in religion and more feminism and uh, a tendency to goddesses and gods, or a goddess and a god, that reflected those needs. And all those appeared in Wicca, along with uh, an intense interest in magic, uh, whether literal as a way of causing change in material things, in conformity with the human will, or something more internal in which you change yourself in order to fit better into the world. And these same movements of feminism, environmentalism, individualism, and uh, an interest in the deep past just got stronger in the late 20th century, particularly so in the counterculture around 1970 and after, and paganism just floated on that. Are there any particular plants or herbs that are specific to Wales or Britain that you think someone might have in the garden, like everybody has, that they should pay more attention to or start conversing with? 
Well, is okay. When I started the plant spirit healing path, we needed to have a plant that was supposed to act like a door opener in order to just allow contact with other plants, a sort of initiation plant. And in my case has been Artemisia vulgaris, which is mugworth, which is, well, it's full of it. Yeah. And it's a very powerful plant. It's a plant that can, is a, for protection, cleansing, alignment, enhance intuition, and uh, work with moon energy, and uh, rewild as well, I would say, at least for the experience I had of breath working with Magworth. And so, and this for women is a very important plant as well, because also Magworth work on like, um, when you have like premenstrual syndrome, so help with female issues. entrenched in the sense of, you know, you have Glastonbury and you have Stonehenge and you have all these markers of ancient Druidic culture that is literally woven into the island, you know, that you're on and it's all there. And in that way, I feel like perhaps because there are remnants, there's a bit more of a direct correlation or there's a bit more of because there's literal proof of when the Romans invaded (laughs) and started changing the pagan culture into Catholicism and Christianity like it's literally all right there in the buildings in in the land you know it's amazing and I think that in the United States I mean we've got our history which is colonization, land theft, murder, 
wiping out any pagan practices that were on the land, you know, assimilation is a really, really big driving energy in America. So what I, I, and I do have a point, I'm going to bring this all back to witchcraft. (laughs) What, What I mean by that is, you know, to assimilate to this kind of blanket, white supremacist kind of culture that was either religious, if you are religious, it's, you know, you're Christian of some kind, um, and you, you're a similar, you're assimilationist. So you don't want to stick out. And in our short culture, you know, we have this, um, legacy of slavery and colonization that I spoke about, but then our only sort of witch like remnant are, are like the Salem witch trials and, Mm. and, and, um, having, magical practices like tarot literally be, um, a crime. Mm. Like there was a very, like there was a very famous case in California, I believe around the early eighties where a tarot reader, you know, got arrested for reading cards because that was, you could be arrested for that. There was an under, an undercover cop came in for a tarot reading. Like you can't make this up, right? Her name is Z Budapest. Um, she's a witch and a practitioner and a tarot reader and arrested her. And so instead of just paying the fine and ceasing her activity, she actually took them to court and she lost, but it was a really big moment. Like a lot of practitioners kind of rallied around her because it was like, I'm not going, this is my practice. Like it's not, you can't arrest me for doing this. This is this long tradition, this long practice. Um, you know, of, of reading tarot. Mm. So I, all of that to say is I think that what I'm seeing, and again, this is all just mostly on the internet and seeing the popularity of workshops and um, classes and courses and things like that. Um, it's, it's, you know, America is kind of the seat of consumerism. So it's a lot about consumption mm. um, and and magic inherently actually is is not about consumption at all. It's about um, your your own empowerment and your own will and working with what is around you and working with nature and kind of um, solidifying a practice that is based around your own um, your own ability to change your energy and change energy around you, um, not in a manipulative way, but in a, a profound, empowering way. Um, I, I also think that it's absolutely no coincidence that in America, there is this uptick in, in witches while, you know, our, our current political situation is what it is. You know, um, when I first was practicing, I knew a lot of other witches, a lot of other psychics, a lot of other tarot readers. That was in in like the early 2000s was when I first started meeting people. And that was kind of my introduction into witchcraft apart from books that I found. You know, I would read books. It was This was before the internet really took off about, <laughs> uh, I'm serious. You know, it was yeah. like in, 19, in 1998, I'm sure there were message boards around Wicca and paganism, but my personal practice is 
non-denominational, which basically means, you know, it's not, I'm not a Wiccan. I, I don't yeah. consort with the Lord and the lady. And, you know, my understanding of magic isn't, is informed of course by traditional craft, but it's very revisionist. It's very intersectional. I don't believe in a binary, which is a lot of what some of that magic traditional magic kind of relies on, um, you know, and, and the dark being bad and the light being good and all this, you know, I I see it much more holistically. And I guess I would argue kind of union in a way Mm. where the dark, the dark is sort of where we, uh, grow and transform. And it's not something to be feared. It's not something to be ignored. Um, again, there's all kinds of different practices. So my practice is definitely a loose, looser, then I think people in the UK would practice or, yeah. you know, I know people are, you know, people who are in the occult tradition, you know, who are yeah. really have studied all the texts and are, are into all the hermetics and the Gnostics. And I have read a lot of that and I believe a lot of it and agree with a lot of it, but my practice is very personal and it's sort of, it's been kind of developed in an intimate fashion if that makes sense wisdom Isis reverence humility humility virgin behold daughter wisdom Dana Isis how much did popular culture um, affect you in the sort of the archetype of the witch shown through popular culture in your youth? How much did that play I, a part? I think that it played a part in so much that in popular culture, the archetype that I grew up in, like my experience. So, you know, in the nineties, basic my, you know, I was a teen in the nineties and what was really much more impactful for me was feminism and riot girl. It was like feminism, riot girl, listening to Patti Smith, looking at Frida Kahlo, like learning about these like very fierce feminist visual artists, um, Alice Neal is this American painter, like these very independent Jenny Holzer, like all these like very independent, strong voices that were feminist. Um, I feel as though my introduction to magic really was at the time I didn't pinpoint it as political. I, but looking back, um, it really was political in the sense of I felt as though I had no autonomy and I felt as though I had no personal power being like a skinny, you know, scrawny, uh, woman who's gay. I was, I'm queer, um, weirdo, like didn't ever fit in in popular culture, wasn't a cheerleader, you know, none of that. Um, I felt like being able to have a toolkit and access point of my own power um, was very exciting to me in my very early 20s because in dominant culture, there was no 
examples of that. Mm. Like there was like Madonna. Like I'm just trying to think back <laughs> of like who who in popular culture what was really shaping me personally. Um there weren't any famous witches that were like out, you know, yeah. there were there was the craft, which is like this yeah. famous 90s yeah. movie, but it, it's not really ac- it's not very yeah. accurate. Like in terms of like the things they do as a practice, like you really in my practice, like you shouldn't really do crazy hexing or do crazy <laughs> like that's not really what I'm yeah. You know, so it was, it was really cool and it's a great film and it's a must view. And then there was like, I'm just trying to think of other witch iconography, what the patriarchy has done a really great job at has been demonizing witches. So whether it's Disney with his wicked witches who are like old and alone or Dorothy, um, the Wizard of Oz with the crazy wicked witch or or the in Snow White, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. that witch, like um, uh, with all of the laws in the states over abortion and a woman's right to choose, you know, we they, you know, the patriarchy has done a really great job of like separating any kind of desire to be a witch with you know like so I think that's part of it too to be thought of as a witch is really coming out in a vulnerable position as being targeted because you know you there's a history of uh, persecution and a history of violence against which people who practice magic Mm -hmm. or practice witchcraft And that all goes back to, you know, so it's inherently political because that all goes back to in our country, you know, um, wiping out indigenous practices that had to do with ownership of the body, um, being able to give yourself abortions, being able to deliver babies, being able to cure, you know, herbalism, being able to cure yourself with plants and, you know, all of those things um, go into really painting a picture of not wanting to sign up to be a witch or not wanting to call yourself a witch. And I find it really awesome that now we're in a place where millennials or people who are much younger than me, I'm 38 years old, are are really embracing a witch, being a witch, whatever that means for them, I don't know. For me, it's deeply tied to being a feminist. It's deeply tied to... Um, wanting to build my free will, wanting to, it's also deeply tied to wanting to help the collective. You know, this very interesting thing happened in my magical practice where I'll be completely honest, in the beginning of my magical practice, it was very selfish. It was like, oh, I want to make more money or, oh, I want to (laughs) move or, oh, I want to, you know, be able to do this or be able to do that which I think is great. And I am coming out saying that publicly because um, I don't think there should be any shame or stigma about like being selfish or casting spells for your own good and your own benefit. Because then what ended up happening was as through a result of doing the work, I had my bills paid. I knew where I was going to live. I felt secure and safe in my own life. I was then able to help others. I was then able to, I had time, I had energy to kind of start thinking about, in magical terms, we would say, my sphere of influence widened. I I felt like I could make an impact 
um, whether it was through teaching or donating money or, you know, doing protesting or serving more people, you know, so on and so forth, trying to help other people, my sphere of influence widened. And I started thinking more about the collective and thinking more about the earth and thinking more about wanting to help the environment, help other people who can't afford, you know, to have a tarot uh, reading or so on and so forth. which has stopped scaring creative people, which from about 1800 onwards. The witch figure has been a wonderful stimulus to the creative imagination. Uh, she has an obvious feminist resonance. She has an obvious connection to the natural world. And she has an obvious power as an expression of human ambition to develop and know the self and to achieve its greatest potential. And those are three extraordinarily powerful movements, aspirations, instincts in the modern world. And they're going to fuel painting, art, music, literature to a great degree. What I find very valuable is in the morning um, to sit at my altar or sit on my couch next to my dog and, and, and go inward and really um, listen really listen, like I'm just listening, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm just allowing myself to wake up, I'm allowing things to come out, fears, anxiety, and then really I call it, I think life coaches termed this word, I think that this is where, where I he heard it, but I can't, I don't quite remember who or where, you can Google it if you're interested, but just this idea of like pre-paving your day. So like my day, it's a mix of like, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to get this done on a very practical way. But it's also I'm going to do those things with flow, with grace, with ease. Oh, I'm going to I'm, I'm really looking forward to this one thing, you know, that I'm going to get to do. Um, and and really, um, I think it was even my my therapist, actually. So I think this is where I'm here, where this idea kind of came through of just imagining myself doing the things I have to do with, with grace, with ease, without anxiety and with magic. I think it's really important to imbue practices, even drudgery practices like to-do lists or taxes or mm. anything with, with magic because you're, you're telling yourself that it's okay. You, I, I, you know, you're, you're allowing yourself to tap into an energy that is neutral, or if it is a bit ziggy zaggy, if it is a bit resistant, you're saying, hey, we can make this like really beautiful. Um, you know, I try to also have some kind of um, practice that is healing, so to speak. So I have like, I have my little herbal infusion, I switch it out once a week, I do a different infusion. I generally have intuitively a different kind nice. of stone around, you know, that I'm kind of hanging out with. <laughs> I do breath, I do breath work. Um, you know, you can do little, little spells 
to kind of keep bringing you back to yourself. You know, I think mindfulness practice as, you know, Buddhism teaches us to be mindful, to pause throughout the day, come back to yourself, realize where you're distracted, realize where you're resistant, um, realize, you know, oh, wait, it's been three days and I haven't done anything fun. Like, maybe I need to, you know, do something that's enjoyable or maybe I have to meet up with a friend or, you know, those kinds of things to kind of, because the best kind of magic is about living. You know, the best kind of magic is about really what we're doing and kind of the day to day and, and our, our, our high is our highest self linking up with our day to day. It you know, where kind of the magical meets the mundane, what are we seeing around us that are giving us, um, that's giving us joy and reminders that we're alive, you know, Once upon a time, there was a christening in the neighbourhood to which the parents were invited. When the day arrived, the wife appeared reluctant to attend the christening, alleging that the distance was too great for her to walk. Her husband told her to fetch one of the horses from the field. I will, said she, if you will bring me my gloves, which I left in her house. He went for the gloves, and finding she had not gone for the horse, he playfully slapped her shoulder with one of them, saying, Go, go. When she reminded him of the terms on which she consented to marry him, and warned him to be more cautious in the future, as he had now given her one causeless blow. On another occasion, when they were together at a wedding and the assembled guests were greatly enjoying themselves, the wife burst into tears and sobbed most piteously. Her husband touched her on the shoulder and inquired the cause of her weeping. She said, Now people are entering into trouble, and your troubles are likely to commence, as you have the second time stricken me without a cause. Years passed on, and their children had grown up and were particularly clever young men. Amid so many worldly blessings, the husband almost forgot that only one causeless blow would destroy his prosperity. Still, he was watchful, lest any trivial occurrence should take place, which his wife must regard as a breach of their marriage contract. She told him that her affection for him was unabated, and warned him to be careful, lest through inadvertence he might give the last and only blow, which, by an unalterable destiny, over which she had no control, would separate them forever. One day it happened that they went to a funeral together, where, in the midst of mourning and grief at the house of the deceased, she appeared in the gayest of spirits and indulged in inconsiderate fits of laughter, which so shocked her husband that he touched her, saying, Hush! Hush! Don't laugh! She said that she laughed because people, when they die, go out of trouble. And rising up, she went out of the house saying, The last blow has been struck, our marriage contract is broken and at an end. Farewell. Then she started off towards Eskayachleisti, where she called her cattle and other stock together, each by name, not forgetting the little black calf which had been slaughtered and was suspended on the hook. And away went the calf and all the stock with the lady across Mithvai Mountain and disappeared beneath the waters of the lake whence the lady had come. 
The four oxen that were ploughing departed, drawing after them the plough, which made a furrow in the ground, and which remains as a testimony of the truth of this story. She is said to have appeared to her sons, and accosting Rirualon, her firstborn, to have informed him that he was to be a benefactor to mankind through healing all manner of their diseases, and she furnished him with prescriptions and instructions for the preservation of health. Then, promising to meet him when her counsel was most needed, she vanished. On several other occasions she met her sons and pointed out to them plants and herbs and revealed to them their medicinal qualities or virtues. So ends the Mythvai legend. The future always has a way of surprising historians, <laughs> and it's probably going to surprise me. The most likely result is that modern paganism and witchcraft will be accepted increasingly as one of a range of possible belief systems for ultra-modern people. In this episode of A Common Craft, I interviewed Professor Ronald Hutton, esoteric herbalist Christina Pandolfo, baker Kimberly Bell, an artist, designer, teacher, and the author of the Many Means workbooks, Sarah Faith Gottestina. The Midfire Legend was read by novelist Sarah Perry. Original music was made by Anna Pika, and incantations were sung by Isabel Jones, Freya Barlow, and myself. This is episode one of four podcasts commissioned for Waking the Witch, an exhibition looking at the importance of craft, ritual and land on the practice of the ever-shifting figure of the witch. Thank you very much for listening, and I am Blue Firth. <laughs>